Are supply chains really broken? The rail industry averts a labor strike. And new efforts to relieve container backlogs at our nation's ports. Pull up a chair and join us as the editors of DC Velocity discuss these stories, as well as news and supply chain trends on this week's Logistics Matters podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Maloney. I'm the Group Editorial Director at DC Velocity. Welcome. Logistics Matters is sponsored by Heister Company, a global manufacturer of forklifts, high-capacity lift trucks, and container handling equipment. Operations rely on Heister for everything from advanced power sources for material handling equipment to their industry-leading package of operator assist technologies, Heister Reaction. For more information, visit heister.com. As usual, our DC Velocity senior editors, Ben Ames and Victoria Kickham, will be along to provide their insights into the top stories of this week. But to begin today, we have been hearing this year about how supply chains are broken. But are they really broken? Our guest today says they're just being reborn. We welcome Mark Dancer. He's the CEO of the Network for Business Innovation. He's also a senior fellow for innovation with the National Association of Wholesaler Distributors and he authors a newsletter on innovating B2B. Welcome, Mark, to Logistics Matters. Hello, David, very happy to be here. Mark, you're gonna be speaking this upcoming week at the CFCMP Edge Conference in Nashville about supply chains, and are they really broken? Well, I think that the there's an opportunity to think differently about the supply chain and fix it or improve it and strengthen it on a lot of different dimensions. Right. We, in the past, we focused a lot on just-in-time delivery and efficiency. And in the work I do with, with uh, distributors and for distribution, I think there's an opportunity to rethink the supply chain and make it much more robust in the way that it serves businesses, kind of move beyond resiliency to make the supply chain responsive and regenerative. You work with a lot of distributors, so you're actually listening to them and you have a lot of association with how distribution should work. What should supply chain professionals know about how distributors are trying to do their work today? Well, if you have an idea of what distributors are because you've worked with them in the past, you should know that uh, they are different and becoming even more different every day. And distributors used to be known as box movers. They had warehouses and they stocked inventory and they took orders and they really were the the last step of the value chain in the sense of getting uh, products to customers. But that's changing. Distributors are under threat of disruption, almost like no other player in the the value chain or in the supply chain is existential for distributors. They're innovating on the front end of their business. They're becoming customer experience companies. They're driving for customer outcomes, which is not just what the products that they sell do and how they perform, but what they achieve in the customer's business, right? So in this sense, as distributors are are transforming their business models, they're not the, the last step of the value chain anymore. They're really about being the value creating tip of the value chain. Mm, that's interesting. Now you're gonna be, as I mentioned, speaking at Edge next week, you actually have two sessions there. And the first one is about foresight for the future. And one of the ideas you're gonna be talking about is running on data and algorithms, but you also call for something called human flourishing. Can you explain what you mean briefly? Yeah, I think it's the responsibility of every B2B innovator in distribution and elsewhere to think very carefully as we digitally transform our businesses. 
because as we do more and more business online and through virtual means, as our business has become run by data and algorithms, as we connect with other businesses so that we have integrated processes and coordinated activities, that's all great. It's all excellent. It delivers, you know, really delivers exponential gains in terms of costs and productivity, quality and speed. But that isn't how business is done. Business is really done in the real world where people work together and businesses work together, where everybody in the supply chain and the customers they serve at both ends, they have needs and they have aspirations. So as we do more and more work and more and more business in the virtual world, it's really important that we think about how we intentionally and consequentially innovate about how we do business as humans for humans, working together to achieve all of our needs and aspirations. That sounds like it'll be an interesting session. And the second one that you're doing there, the second uh, session, we'll be digging in a bit about sharing stories of progress. Can you share a little bit of what, what you will be doing there? Yeah, I'm really hoping the second session is almost a work session in a way. What the supply chain and what distribution needs to move forward is really a marketplace of ideas, right? The, the, I, I can sense from my work for distributors the path that we can take and the new value we can create, but how we get there is you know, anybody's guess. And so I think one of my rules and things I've learned is that the best way to have a good idea is to have lots of ideas. So in that second session, I want to change you know, stories from the front line of distribution, some of the creative things they're doing. I'm going to share ideas that are shaping those new things. And then we're going to kick around you know, how we can actually act on that, how it creates value for customers, for the supply chain, what it means for our business models, what it means for our profits. Should be a very good interactive session to kind of put a capstone on the first session. Can you give us a couple of examples or some highlights? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to explore it in three different categories. And these are all designed to be out of the box business model opportunities for distributors, right? So one is can distributors and the supply chain act as an innovation intermediary, right? An innovation intermediary is a thing. There's scholars scholarly research about it. It's really any company that brings other companies and resources and capabilities to help their customers innovate. So not just innovating in your own business, but how you, how you step up to help customers innovate in theirs. Second, we'll talk about regenerative distribution models, which is where sustainability is heading. You know, sustainability today is less about uh, doing you know, le less harm to the environment and other things. And it's really more about how they can do more good, which is an invitation for collaboration and for innovation. You know, how can distributors in the supply chain not just help their customers, their workers and their companies, but whole communities kind of move forward in the digital age. And then we're going to do something which is really kind of crazy. We're going to talk about decentralized distribution. And here I'm going to model on decentralized finance, which is banking without banks. I'm going to share some of the really radical thinkers I know what they're doing as they think about distribution without distributors. Hmm, that does sound really interesting. We, we've seen how supply chains have struggled during the past year and actually two years. In fact, supply chain has now become a household word. So where do supply chains go moving forward and how much of a role does resiliency play in that? Well, I think resiliency is huge. 
you know, I like, and I'll share this in my first session, I like to think about the supply chains as where innovation happens. You know, for centuries, when people came together in ports and on roads, uh, at railheads, on uh, railroads later, you had cultures come together and ideas come together, and that created innovation as we shared ideas and trade and move things forward. And I think the supply chain today can be that. We can step up to that. It's not just about moving boxes from, you know, from Asia to Los Angeles or some other places around the world. It's about how we connect the people on both ends of the supply chain and how we generate ideas and how we work to something that's really more robust, right? If we think about resiliency, sometimes the solutions are things like another source, right? Or sharing inventory transparency, uh, moving away from just-in-time delivery. And those things are great. You know, they'll we'll do more and more of that. And as we do business as, as digital businesses, we'll be very integrated and that'll help with our resiliency. But I think we've got to move forward on a, on a couple of other levels, right? If we think about how we can align ourselves through distributors with our other customers of the supply chain with the needs and aspirations of our customers, right? And how we help them move their business forward. We will find new ways to deliver products. We'll find new ways to deliver knowledge. We'll find new ways to deliver connections so people you know they can help them. And so the supply chain will become resilient, be more resilient, hyper resilient, by becoming more robust in the way it serves its customers. Again, you'll be at the EDGE conference next week in Nashville. So if folks are attending, we encourage you to check out the two sessions that Mark will be doing. But you also have a newsletter. How can people find out more about the newsletter? Just simply, uh, I guess, search on your favorite internet platform for Mark Dancer on innovating B2B, and it will come up. It's, a sub, it's on the Substack platform. Um, and I have uh, uh, free and paid subscriptions, but everybody in the that gets a free subscription gets everything I have. And what I do there is I look for ideas on the edge, right? People that are thinking about how we're all going to live our lives and do our work in the future. And then I translate those visions of the future to how distribution and the supply chain can innovate for their customers and for themselves. We've been talking to Mark Dancer. He's been our guest today. He's the CEO of the Network for Business Innovation. Mark, uh, good to have you with us, and we'll see you next week in Nashville. No, thank you very much for having me today, and I really look forward to meeting everybody in Nashville in person. It's been a pleasure. Now let's take a look at some of the other supply chain news from the week. And Victoria, you've been following the labor negotiations that have been going on with our nation's railroad and their labor unions. And we're happy to report that a strike has been averted. Can you tell us what all it means now? Sure, I can tell you a little bit, Dave. So rail companies and union leaders uh, reached a tentative labor agreement this week following days of speculation that a strike was imminent and would threaten already strained U.S. supply chains. The groups had been negotiating unsuccessfully for more than two years and things came to a head this week, uh, as you um, indicated, uh, as a contract deadline neared. So the tentative agreement was reached um, late Wednesday night and announced by President Biden Thursday morning. And that followed hours of negotiations in Washington between company and union leaders um, and mediated by government officials. 
And although it's tentative, the agreement is welcome news throughout the logistics industry because, as I said, it came ahead of a deadline that actually would have allowed freight rail industry workers to strike as early as today. And that's something that many business groups said would devastate the economy, disrupt and slow down supply chains, and add to the inflationary conditions that are already hurting businesses and consumers. About 30% of U.S. freight is carried by rail, so that's a big chunk of the cargo that flows across our country. On top of that, the Association of American Railroads had estimated that a shutdown of freight rail lines could cost the U.S. economy about $2 billion a day. So a lot was at stake, and as I said, a shutdown, and as you said, uh, seems to be averted for now. Yeah, but definitely a good thing for sure, but uh, of course this is a tentative deal, so what happens next? Yeah, that's right. So the next step is for the unions involved to review the agreement and vote on it. And my understanding is that they have several weeks to do that. The White House didn't share details about a timeline in its statement, but they did say, and um, industry associations and lobbying groups said as well, that they're urging labor unions to accept and approve the deal. So we'll keep our eyes on it to see what happens next. Um, and of course, you know, with several weeks to go to, um, you know, have this vote and have it approved, the hope is that we'll get through peak season without any um, shutdowns or further drama or problems. As for the deal itself, uh, the American Association of Railroads released some details about it. They said in a statement Thursday that the proposed contracts will provide rail employees um, a 24% wage increase um, over five a five-year period from 2020 to 2024. Um, and that follows recommendations from um, a presidential emergency board that was established in July to mediate the talks. Um, there are several unions involved and they represent about 60,000 uh, workers. So crisis averted for now, but um, with inflation and the rising costs that we're seeing, we may see more labor unrest as various industry contracts expire. So this may be just the first of many to come. Yes, that's true. Thanks, Victoria. You're welcome. And Ben, you wrote this week about new efforts to try to relieve some of the backlogs of containers at our nation's ports. Can you share some details? Yeah, glad to. Uh, it's been really one of the consistent themes that we've been covering throughout the pandemic uh, is those long backlogs at container ports. If you you know, go to the, uh, the logistics trade shows, it's been almost a parlor game to count the number of ships, you know, floating off of LA and Long Beach. Um, that has since uh, been ex um, relieved uh, to a large extent. Um, but really the shutdowns and reopenings around the world are still upsetting uh, that delicate flow of containers uh, that between countries, um, returning empty ones to refill them. And uh, at the same time, you know, in, in the middle of all that, chaos, uh, the, the maritime container lines have been doing great. Um, they've been enjoying, you know, all-time high profits in the last several quarters. Um, since in the middle of that, they've been able to charge higher prices and, and shippers really have no choice but to pay those. So uh, in June, uh, Congress tried to tackle some of this problem when it passed a bill uh, with, with broad bipartisan support, always a good thing to see in these divided days, uh, called the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. And that act was crafted as a response to complaints from those shippers and manufacturers uh, about having to pay those exorbitant freight rates, um, about declining booking requests to, to be able to ship their goods, um, and high freight and particularly detention and demurrage charges. Uh, so the act was really celebrated by all sorts of uh, supply chain partners. Uh, really the only 
pushback uh, that I found in our coverage came from the World Shipping Council, which is the trade group for those ocean carriers. Uh, so it sort of stands to reason that they wouldn't want the extra oversight. Uh, however, this work week we heard from two other groups who are saying that so far the act is actually harder to put into practice than they'd hoped. And that's really because of um, a, you know, a, a familiar bugbear, um, which is visibility and data exchange. Uh, the groups were saying that, um, that the various business interests at the import-export docks just don't share enough data to allow them to follow the, the letter of the law. Uh, to get specific, there's a company called Trade Tech uh, located in Washington State. And they say that non-vessel operating common carriers, NVOCCs, are in a pinch because that new reform act requires either them or the ocean carriers to determine that demerge and detention charge however those nvoccs often don't have access to the data they need you know to get the timing right on that um the firm says it's you know it's a problem that ocean carriers and the terminals are either unwilling or unable to provide that information to them uh, and that there's not even an interface between the parties uh, in which to convey it. Well, that does sound like it's pretty challenging to implement. Are there any possible solutions that are being proposed? Well, one suggestion uh, came from another party uh, who, who had issued a statement on this issue, and that was the Retail Industry Leaders Association, or RELA. Um, they are calling for an emergency order that would require common carriers and marine terminal operators to share that kind of information with shippers, truckers, and railroads. Uh, RELA made that request to the Federal Maritime Commission, and that's the government agency in this case that's in charge of managing the program. Uh, more specifically, RELA is calling for better communication on uh, variables like the total number and dwell times for loaded and empty containers at the terminals. Uh, appointment times and availability, empty container returns, and access to containers. Uh, some other ideas on how to resolve this came from Trade Tech, that company we talked about just now, which asked the uh, Federal Maritime Commission to delay a full implementation of the, of the new act and to allow uh, what they call the grace period for the industry to adapt to the new reporting requirement and basically figure out how to generate this data. Uh, so we'll have to see what the FMC decides, uh, but given the amount of cargo that's involved, uh, we really hope the answer can be found in some fine-tuning to the structure of this act, as opposed to returning to the table for some major new policy creation. Yeah, well, that makes sense, and hopefully they can figure it all out. Yep, we'll be covering it. We encourage listeners to go to dcvelocity.com for more on these and other supply chain stories. And check out the podcast notes section for some direct links on the topics that we discussed today. Our thanks to Mark Dancer of the Network for Business Innovation for being our guest. We welcome your comments on this topic and our other stories. You can email us at podcast at dcvelocity.com. We also encourage you to subscribe to Logistics Matters at your favorite podcast platform. Our new episodes are uploaded on Fridays. And speaking of subscribing, check out our sister podcast series, Supply Chain in the Fast Lane. It's co-produced by the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals and Supply Chain Quarterly. Subscribe to it wherever you get your podcast. And a reminder that Logistics Matters is sponsored by Heister. With strength, durability, and their industry-leading suite of lift truck operator assist technologies, Heister powers your possibilities. For more information, visit heister.com. 
As we mentioned in our guest interview, CSEMP's EDGE Conference is next week in Nashville, and our team will be there in full force. Since we'll be taking that in and it will have all of our attention, we won't be producing our podcast next Friday. We will instead be back in two weeks on September 29th. We'll see you then. Until then, have a great week.